Firing chain is armed. Sound suppression water system activated. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. And so we are starting a brand new series I'm calling Ignite. About 15 years ago, uh, this month, 15 years ago, I was in a class learning how to launch a church. It was a practice called church planting, but the, the newest, hippest way of talking about starting a church wasn't planting because that takes too long. The newest, hippest way 15 years ago was talking about how to launch a church and because launching is a whole lot more exciting and, you know, you know, goes faster. So anyway, I'm in this class. We're learning how to launch a church. Then 14 years ago, my family moved here to Lafayette, and Jen and I were meeting weekly with a bunch of people that we were trying to convince to be on our launch team to get this church started. And in that process, I realized something. I didn't realize it in these exact terms back then, but in retrospect, for all the stuff that I had gone through, the classes and all the meetings that we had, in retrospect, I've learned something that should have been obvious to me from the beginning and is obvious to anyone who's ever watched an actual rocket launch. It's this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's not biblical. It's just me, but it's my principle that's sort of a foundation for what we're talking about today and in the future. It's this. Before you can launch, you need a fire. Before you can launch, you need a fire. Something has to get the fire started. Because unless you have that fire, there's no energy for the rest of the launch. All of the launch depends on whether or not you can start it up at the beginning. It's my hope that you and this church, that we together can launch into this new decade with a new sense of identity as our church, with a new sense of passion for God. And the way to make that happen is to focus on getting the fire back. And what do I mean by the fire? Well, we use in our church the metaphor regularly of the fire being a metaphor of the presence of God. Throughout the Bible, the Fire is often used as a metaphor for the presence of God. When he shows up, frequently there's a fire of some kind. And so we're using that same metaphor in our context to try to cover this ground of what does it mean for us to be on fire? What does it mean for us to be connected to each other and connected to God in a way that launches us into this new year? So for eight weeks, we're going to be getting together. We're going to have unified worship. Now you need to know, we're not doing the unified worship because it's easier Granted, I did get to sleep longer this morning, okay? But also, just so you know, if I mess this one up, this is the only chance I get, okay, right? So it's not exactly easier. It's a little bit more stressful for me and for some of the other people who are involved in some of this stuff. It's definitely not more convenient. We've got Kidopolis workers who are now working for the only worship gathering that we have. And so that's kind of a problem for, for them. We're going to do a better, hopefully, a better job of rotating them out more frequently. We've got Oasis Junior High workers back here, and they're missing out. We've got some people who are operating things in the lobby for us, and so they're kind of missing out on what's happening in here. So it's not more convenient. It's not 
easier. The only reason we're doing this is because there is something that God can do when his people are gathered together. I want to prove it to you. I want to show it to you in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, I'm going to put this verse up on the screen. If you're following along in our app, you just need to click on the live notes at the very top of the app's homepage, and you should see this pop up. But we are looking at this passage in Acts chapter 2. It says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they, talking about the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. Surely, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What you see in this passage here, we've talked about it before, but what you see in that passage there is that the people of God who were trying to follow Jesus, Jesus had died, he had risen again, they had watched him levitate into heaven, And those people were promised by Jesus that if you stay here, the Holy Spirit will meet you here. Jesus said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit shows up. And so they did. But they didn't just wait around. They waited together. They looked for the opportunities when they could be together. And so they found a house that was big enough to hold 120 of them. They all got together in that place. They're all sitting down somehow. And then God shows up. And he shows up with a wind and with fire. We've talked about our church's metaphor for wind being a representation of how much we need God, and God's presence shows up in that way, but he also shows up in this passage through this fire thing. The Holy Spirit shows up, and what's fascinating is that they're all together in one place, but when the Spirit shows up, a fire shows up, and then it separates into separate things and rests on each one of them individually. And the thing that we've been trying to communicate throughout our church's existence is that God's Spirit works in every single individual follower of Jesus. God's Spirit shows up on every individual follower of Jesus. The promise of God's Spirit is for every individual who follows Jesus. But He shows up in a unique, powerful way when God's people are together. And it's in that that moment where we can be together as individual representatives of the Holy Spirit, that God really gets to do something fascinating and really cool. So for eight weeks, we're gathering all together so that we can all be together in one place. And so the spirit that is in you and you and each one of you and in me can work with all of us to raise up something even cooler, even better, even more fiery, so to speak. But what I want to do is emphasize just a little bit of the practical side of things. See, it's one thing for us to all get together in the room, but that's not going to solve any problems. What we want to do is we want to be people who know how to get on fire, people who know how to be lit up, people who know the principles of ignition. So I thought I would show you some, but before I show you the Bible principles of ignition, I wanted to tell you about my own experience with that. You see, my own experience with that is um, when I was a kid, I was kind of a pyromaniac. Um, The problem was I was bad at it. I guess that's the good thing. Uh, the, The good part about me being a pyromaniac is that I was bad at it. You know, the TV always had these things that said, you know, don't play with matches. And then they also had these separate ads that said stop, drop, and roll. And I was like, well, how can I ever practice the one if I don't do the other, right? 
No, so that's, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't play with matches as a kid. But I, I did enjoy fire a lot. My mom would sometimes have a candle. And I took it upon myself to, um, what's the right way to say it? Do science? Um, and so I purchased, an, I learned a technique that if you got a magnifying glass, you could make fire with just the sun and a magnifying glass. I thought this is fascinating. So I purchased a lot of magnifying glasses. And it took me a long time. I even found one that was like supposed to be a campfire fire starter. And I never had any success. I would go out in my backyard. Now listen, I was raised in California. The sun is pretty hot out there. And so I was, I was in the southern part of, part of the state in the desert. You know, everything around us is dry. A fire that gets started just never stops. But anyway, I'm in my backyard and I've got the little, the little magnifying glass and I've got a piece of paper and, I'm, and I learned a few things. Now, now I'm smarter than I was back then, but I have learned a few things. One is that white paper will smoke and never ignite. I learned it the hard way. Another lesson that I learned is that when you are shining the sun on white paper, you can't see very well for the next few minutes. <laughs> so I decided one day that I was going to do it right. I got a Fresnel magnifying lens. I don't know if you know what about a, a Fresnel lens. It's the flat sheet that just has the little circular rings in it. And they're super crazy powerful if they're done right. And so I got a Fresnel lens and I got some Ray-Bans, some really dark sunglasses. And I'm putting them on. And so I go out and this was at school um, because my parents worked there and so I could. So I had, I had a piece of paper and I was I had my Fresnel lens and the sun was up and I was wearing my glasses and I was doing the thing and I'm like checking my eyes every now and then. Can I still see? Am I blind? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And so I'm doing the thing and I'm trying and the paper is smoking and I can see the smoke and I can see the sunlight, but I can't see anything else. I can see the smoke and I can see the sunlight, but the sunlight on the paper is just so bright. So anyway, I'm doing the thing, I'm doing the thing and it's smoking and smoking and it just won't catch on fire. Finally, I'm just so frustrated. Give up. I toss the magnifying glass to the side, the, the Fresnel lens. I take off my sunglasses and I look down and there I can see both layers of the paper burned with a hole in the middle of them. And then I thought, both layers? I only had one layer of paper. So I pulled the paper off to the side and there my nice white shirt underneath had a hole right smack dab in the middle of it. And I'm like, Oh, that's the pain that I was feeling. So, so I burned a hole. I burned a hole in my shirt and I had to go and explain it to my mom. I, okay, so here's the deal. I was unsuccessful at igniting something, but I was successful at damaging things. So we have to, we have to do a better job of how do we do ignition if we're going to be trying to kind of ignite our fire. We have to do a good job, a better job than I did when I was a kid trying to start paper on fire. And so I want to show you in real practical terms what that's going to mean for us. At the end of Acts chapter 2, there's a very famous passage that I really like to see, but I'm going to start just a few passages earlier than that. It begins with Peter, and Peter is talking. He says this in verse 38. 
Peter replies to the crowd of people. He says, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. He says, this promise of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. All you need to do, you need to be a person who repents, and a person who is baptized. In other words, you need to be a person who has a direct relationship with God. You repented of your sins. You invited him to take charge of your life. And you have a relationship with God's people. You've been baptized so that you have a covering of a church over you, a church family with you, and you have testified to the world that you're a follower of Jesus. That's what it's all about. Repentance is the up and down on my relationship with God. Baptism is kind of the relationship with other people in obedience to what Jesus already did. But Peter says if you repent and you're baptized, then the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you also. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you also. Keep reading. He says, with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Well, those are words that can be said every single year, can't they? Anyway, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How long did those baptisms take? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Keep going. He says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A lot of people have looked at this passage as kind of the recipe for what a church should be like. I don't necessarily agree that this passage is a recipe for what the church should be like, because nowhere in the New Testament are we told that your responsibility is to sell all your possessions and give them to the church. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is that referred to as as a goal or a thing that we should do. It is descriptive, though, of four clear things that are going on in the early church, four principles they were living by. And those four principles they were living by are the recipe for any church. I'm using them as our ignition principles. It says at the very beginning of that passage that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what you need to know about that is there are 3,000 people, 3,000 people who just came to faith. They've never heard this message of Jesus. They don't know any of this stuff. And so the first thing they need to do, do is they need to learn who this Jesus is. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer because they needed to experience it. They needed to be in relationship with the other people. It wasn't good enough to just know some answers. They had to feel those answers. They had to be in fellowship so they could feel what the Holy Spirit was doing in the context of their gathered midst. But that's not all. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They also did sell things, and they cared for each other. Now, that's not because they needed to always sell their, print, their products and sell their uh, possessions. It's not because Jesus said they always need to sell their possessions. It's because 3,000 people 
from all over the ancient world had gathered together in Jerusalem. They became followers of Jesus. They wanted to learn about Jesus, and they didn't want to go home. So that means the church had to care for all of these people who were instant refugees, all of these people who were instantly in the church but had no home. Because if they went back to their homes, they couldn't hear about Jesus. And so the church rallied together and they said, okay, it's not just enough for us to feel the Spirit. It's not just enough for us to know the Spirit. What we need to do is we need to live by the Spirit. We need to let the Spirit change our behaviors. We need to let the fire of God transform how we live. And so even though I would like to keep my possessions, I am going to sacrifice my stuff for the sake of the other people who need it now. Now, it's a temporary thing. It had long-term consequences for those individual people who did that kind of donation, but it also had long-term positive consequences for the whole church. So the ignition principles, you need to know the fire, you need to experience the fire, feel it, you need to live it, but then if you noticed at the end of that passage, it also said the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, how did God add new people to them? Someone had to tell those new people about Jesus, right? Just before that line, it said, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and from house to house. In other words, these people got together in public, they got together in private, they got together all over the place, and every time they got together, they were talking about Jesus. The last principle, you have to give it. You have to, if you want to experience the fire of God in your life, there are four things that ignite it in you. You need to know God's fire. You need to feel God's fire. You need to live God's fire. And you have to give God's fire. Share it with others. Over these next eight weeks, we're going to be talking about these four things, twice each. Today, we're going to deal with, just in the few minutes we have left, we're going to deal with the first one, how to know the fire of God. And then we're going to cover the next ones over the next few weeks. And then we're going to come all back to know all over again, but looking at it a little deeper, looking at it in kind of a newer perspective. And so over these eight weeks, it's our job to try to ignite what God wants to do in our lives, to let him ignite something in us. And we're just going to follow the principles of the early church, okay? We're going to know, we're going to feel, we're going to live, and we're going to give. So today, for the last few minutes I have, I want to help you understand how to know the fire of God. And there are a couple key passages that we're going to look at. Three different passages in Exodus. We're going to look at one in Isaiah, and we're going to look at one in Malachi. So if you have your Bible, flip to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to put it up on the screen, but I'm going to read it from my Bible here just because it's kind of a long passage. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to find something about the fire of God. We're going to find something out about the fire of God. It says this, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is also known as Sinai, if you've ever heard of that mountain. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain, just different names. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When it was a fire, he was looking at it. But when he realized what it really was, he hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to skip down. God says to Moses in verse 10, So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Skipping to verse 12, God says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Okay, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and by the way, the word there, Lord, it's all capitalized in the English Bibles, capital L-O-R-D. And that's because the Hebrew word behind it is the word Yahweh. It's usually put in our Bibles as Lord because the ancient Hebrews had a practice of not pronouncing the name Yahweh out loud. Instead, they would say the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. But it's important that you know God gave them a personal name here. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. There are a lot of things going on in that passage, but there are two themes that show up time and time again. The first theme is the theme of holiness, right? God says, this is holy ground, take off your sandals. God speaks to Moses, he says, I'm God, and Moses hides his face, he's afraid to look at God. The the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up somehow. There's something weird, something unique, something special. Holiness is the word that means completely set apart. But the place where we see holiness most clearly is when Moses says, but what's your name? Who are you? And God's response is, I am who I am. See, that's the thing. There is no word to describe God. If you ask who I am, I give you lots of words. I'm a guy, I'm an American, I'm a pastor, I'm white, I'm short, I've got bad eyesight, but you can't tell because I'm wearing vanity contacts. And, uh, because all contacts are vanity contacts, I think. Maybe some of them are practical. Anyway, so I could use all kinds of adjectives to describe myself, right? But when Moses says to God, God, who are you? God says, I am. That is the highest description of holiness. God is who he is. There's nothing else like it. You can't even use words to describe him. We use, we use words in our world to try to describe God, but none of them do describe God. He just is. He's the eternal. He's, he's the holy one. He's far and above all of us. He just is who he is. But this is interesting. Immediately after he says, I am, he says to Moses, you shall tell them I am has sent me to you. 
And then immediately after that, God says, and use this word, Yahweh. So the Hebrew phrase, I am, sounds like Hayah, which is cool in itself, you know. Um, the Hebrew phrase for I am sounds like Hayah, and Yah then becomes the beginning of this other word God gives, Yah, and Way almost kind of sounds like the, the other half of that ha Hayah thing. And so God kind of takes that word and he just mixes it into a name for himself. And then he says the most amazing thing. You shall call me. See, this is God, the Holy One, who says, I've seen your suffering and I've come down. And so even though I am who I am, I'm going to give you a word, a name, my name for generations, and you can use this name to call me. See, the thing that you need to know about God's fire first and foremost is that God is holy, but he cares. He's holy, but he cares. If you keep going in Exodus... You'll make it to verse 21 in chapter 13, where we begin to see God doing something else with fire that is also fascinating and quite cool. Exodus 13, verse 21 says this, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place from in front of the people. And that's amazing. I love that story of this fire being in front of them by, at night, giving them light and warmth, and this cloud being in front of them at, during the day, giving them guidance. I love that picture, but it's even better than that. Look at chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 19, we see these words. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. God, why would you want to send your pillar of cloud that's supposed to guide us to the back of us. Why would you want to do that? Because, verse 20, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, there were the Egyptians coming after them. And God says, I'm taking my presence, my cloud, my angel, my fire, and I'm sticking it between the two of you. In front of Egypt, behind Israel, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. That picture is so amazing. God is a God who can make the cloud be bright or he can make the cloud be dark. And so he does. The Egyptians have no light whatsoever and the Israelites have all the light that they need so that they can see the Egyptians are not sneaking up on them. And the Egyptians cannot see anything and should just be afraid. And so here is God with the cloud in between the two of them. But here's something you need to know. A lot of times people look at God and they say, oh God, he loves everybody. Oh God, he just cares for everybody. And that's just the Old Testament God that sometimes, you know, he doesn't like some people. And so he's against Egyptians and for Israelites. Listen, I've covered that ground before. I don't have to cover all that ground today and I don't have time to. But I will say this. God makes it very clear. 
He knows his people. He knows his people. God is a God who is holy, but he cares and he knows his people. And when his people are in trouble, he does intervene. When his people need guidance and comfort and protection, he does step in. And God knows who his people are. Keep going in Exodus chapter 19. We get another experience of God's fire. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19. Say this, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Skip to chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. God is a God who commands his people. God is a God who, he's holy, he cares, he knows the difference between his people and those who aren't his people, and he gives commands to those who are his people. But head with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this amazing vision. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, which, by the way, the Hebrew word seraph means burn, and im is the plural. So seraphim are burning ones, angels that appear as if they are on fire. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the fiery ones flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The fire of God is a fire that atones It's a fire that forgives. Isaiah sees God in all of his glory. He sees God in all of his majesty, all of his wonder, and he says, woe is me, I'm terrible. But the angel flies to Isaiah, he touches his lips, and he says, God forgives you. God forgives you. God is holy. He cares for his people. He knows his people. He commands his people, but he forgives his people. And then just to top it all off, there's something you need to know. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Let's just put it up on the screen there. It's a tiny book. It'll take me a while to flip to it. Malachi 3, 6 through 7. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. 
Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. I want you to notice something here. God says three really important things. I know it's not a passage about fire. I needed to put this one on the screen anyway. But God says three important things. He said, I don't change. He says, you have failed. And he says, but if you come back, I will return to you. I want you to write this down. God hasn't changed. So here's the deal. Many years ago, a promise was given to people that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Many years ago, they were gathered together in one place, and the Holy Spirit did come upon them. Many years ago, the world was transformed by the simple fact that these small group of, this small group of people lived out the fire of God's presence in their life. And because they lived out the fire of God's presence in their life, not just a church was launched, but the church was launched. And it started out. And all you need to do to start out is to begin with the recognition of who God is. God is a holy God, but he cares. He cares for you. God is a God who knows his people. Do you have him as your God? God is a God who commands his people. Are you living inside those commands? And God is a God who forgives people. Will you receive his forgiveness? Because God doesn't change. And he says, even if you've wandered away from me, if you return to me, I'll return to you. Today I want to leave you with one question for this week. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God's fire in your life? If the answer to that question is meh, then show up next week and let me, give another, let me get another chance to convince you. If your answer to that question is yes, then let me encourage you to show up tomorrow. Not here, we're not doing anything here. But show up tomorrow in your life. Open up your Bible. Spend some time in prayer. Seek God while he may be found. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And I invite you, I invite you to seek and pursue him so that you can know his fire in your life this week and for the next eight weeks and for the rest of your life. We're going to end our time with a song. It's a song that's going to be new to you, but it's a song that simply says, I just want to know your heart, God. I just want to know your heart. So I want to ask you to spend just a few moments in reflection now. Take that Connect card. Jot down some thoughts. What's your response to today? What's your response to this experience? What's your response to this message? And what does it mean for you to say, yes, God, I want to know you? Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.